0: whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident the last best place or legends of the fall why is it that so many of the books that have defined the american west come from the same place this is breakfast in montana i'm russell Rowland,
1: and i'm aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books.
0: So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam
1: on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana.
0: This is Russell Rowland, and I'm Aaron Parrott. And today, on Breakfast in Montana, we're going to talk about two books um, that are very closely related. This is a first for us, actually. This is the first time we're going to do a biography. That's true. And it's called Grinnell. It's by our friend John Tolliver.
2: Tell us about that name,
0: because it doesn't look like Tolliver.
2: Well, the English tongue is not very friendly. For its foreign names, it never was, it never will be. So it stomps on any foreign name. So my name is spelled Talia It's an yeah. Italian name, but um, my people came into the English-speaking world in the 1600s, and um, and were never allowed to pronounce it. Um, oh, really? With its pronunciation. So it was Italian basically pronunciation. foisted
0: so, upon your family. Then? Well.
2: I guess so, and it's it's sort of become a point of amusement, pride, and shame. <laughs> but there it is. Yeah. Tolliver. And the other book,
1: actually two books. We each read a different book by the guy who's the subject of the biography, George Bird Grinnell. Um, I read his History of the Blackfeet.
0: And I read The Fighting Cheyennes, so... Yeah, George Bird Grinnell was a
1: fascinating guy who's
0: kind of been forgotten in history, and that's part of the reason that John wanted to write about him.
1: And I think it's worth uh, reading the subtitle of the book, too, that it's America, uh, Grinnell, America's Environmental Pioneer and His Restless Drive to Save the West.
0: Yeah, that sums up the story really well, because this guy was, he was an East Coast guy and never actually moved to the west but he came out here every year for most of his life most of his adult life
1: yeah for you know long periods of time um which is an interesting contrast and this comes up in the interview with Mm tolliver that you know teddy roosevelt gets all the credit for being the father of the conservation movement but as Larry McMurtry pointed out if you added up all the time that Roosevelt was out in the West it's less than a year I think
0: that's amazing yeah. and I also
1: just can never forgive Roosevelt for all the good he did um, you know when he came out here to shoot a buffalo he you know, roamed around Wyoming and Montana for six weeks until he found one and then he shot it uh, It's probably the last known buffalo <laughs> uh,
0: yeah he, his hunting uh, practices were definitely at odds with what Rennell was preaching at the time too which is pretty fascinating. So, tell us about Grinnell. What what was the inspiration for what what interested you in the story?
2: So, my book is a biography of this man, George Bird Grinnell, who uh, kept popping up in my life. I've written. Six books. The first one was a biography of Charlie Russell, which was sort of my calling card, my introduction to Montana. Russell being the patron saint of Montana. Well, uh, many people know that Charlie Russell ended up the end of his life with a cabin on the on Lake McDonald in Glacier Park. Uh, Grinnell, George Bird Grinnell, was one of the guys who put Glacier Park on the map, made mm-hmm. it a national park. Um, Grinnell was more of an East Side Glacier guy, and Russell the West Side. But they they were contemporaries, and they knew each other. So it was one of uh, well, they knew each other. They met each other in New York. So there was that. I knew I saw Grinnell at the sort of the edge of the Russell picture frame for a while. Um, I wrote a book about the Black Hills, Great White Fathers, about Mount Rushmore and the Black Hills, and Georgeburg Grinnell had been uh, the naturalist with the Custer reconnaissance into the Black Hills in 1874 I wrote a book about Alaska and, and early missionaries and whalers up in Alaska in 1898 well Grinnell was with the famous Harriman wow. expedition in the summer of uh, 1899 and so I'd read all of his accounts and diaries there so Grinnell is just sort of hanging around and hanging around uh, and I thought, well, I better really look at him directly and figure out who he was. And first time, for my first thought was, this is a guy, he, he came to Montana, he came to Montana first in the 1880s, and he kept coming back for the next 40 plus years. Most Montanas don't know this. This guy spent, put more footprints and fingerprints on Montana than almost anybody uh, I can think of, and yet he's sort of been lost. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to figure out what he did and what he'd done here. And I thought it was going to be a story about this Easterner who got, sort of got the last uh, squeeze out of the toothpaste tube of Western life. You know, he got the first, you know, the last mountain that hadn't been climbed. Well, then I realized that, well, he was much more than that, that he was really the father of American conservation. He was a very progressive. Forward-looking guy in terms of um, trying to help out, uh, save the wild places, and also uh, stick up for uh, Native Americans.
1: Mm. Right, and and you know, as Tolliver explains, the reason Roosevelt became a conservationist yeah. was because he hung out with Grinnell. He was really the the guy who. Made all those rich Easterners take an interest in. Yeah,
0: and I, I think John did an amazing job of laying out how that whole progression took place in in Grinnell's life and and with the people that he.
1: It's a really spent time with. It's a masterpiece of a of a biography because, like, unlike so many historical biographies, it's not just X, Y, and Z, and then this happened after that, and this happened after that, and then these are the years he did this. It's. There's a thesis to it. He really develops the case that Grinnell was the father of conservation. His early experiences, the stuff you're describing, Uh, with the family taking over the... Taken over the Audubon estate, just like what drove this guy to yeah. be who he was. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I I
2: joke about it, but I say, you know, there was, you children out there listening on this podcast, there was a time in American white people, white males, actually did some good in the world, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and Brunel was one of them, and I think he 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 realized that that was. Uh, what a person did. There was something called the progressive movement in the U.S. in the late 19th century. Progressive meant something fairly, something more specific back then than it, more so than it does today. Well, progressivism was a reform movement. There were a number of people in New York, uh, people of affluence, education, social standing, who didn't like what was going on in American society with the, the, problems with slums, the problem with graft, the corruption in government, Tammany Hall, the spoil system. And they rolled up their sleeves and said, We're gonna get in the dirty business of politics and tried to fix the 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 urban modern problems in government and and in business. And Grinnell, who went west at the at the time and and but was a New Yorker of course, he came back east and he saw the concerns of what was happening to the wild spaces and the public lands and the Native Americans and he brought conservation into the American progressive movement Mm. he said we're going to use Mm. government to solve these problems you know we had conservationists before we had Thoreau we had John Muir who you know revered nature and, and slept in a bed of pine needles, but John Muir didn't write any laws. Cornell did, and he had enough connections that he made some important changes that really have lasting imprint on, on this country today. Laws regarding um, national parks, public lands, migratory birds, uh, just across the board. And that's why when he died in 1938, he was the New York Times called him the Father of American Conservation." Wow, mm. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but he brings the guy to life. I oh, mean, it's
1: so vivid, and yeah. the writing is stellar. Just, yeah. It's like that old-school, historical writing. You know, Arthur Toynbee, or just one of those guys, just... Yeah,
0: and of course, uh, the main reason he did was able to do that was because of the amazing amount of research that he did yeah, what did he say like 40,000 documents I think that was just from the library right one and of the thousands and
1: thousands of pages of letters and he read them all and put them on a flash drive yeah and, and yeah, spent, so, what did he say six years yeah
0: six years yeah and of course one of the nice things about this whole this episode is John did most of the work <laughs> yeah that, the way he described his process and uh, what he was trying to accomplish was Your books are labor-intensive. You do a ton of research. So um, how did you end up becoming interested in that type of writing? And and, um, what's your process, basically, as far as how you approach each of these? Well, I was,
2: you know, like you two, I started out as a a reader. I was a writer because I like to read. And so I thought the idea, if I can there was something magical about a book. You can read a book and go and go through a portal into a world that's all your own. And I thought, well, if I could make one of these, then maybe I can get a little sense of what that magic is. Mm. My father was a manufacturer. He made big machines, dredges and pumps. And I thought, well, I need to, maybe there's an honorable trade in making something. So as an English major, a guy who read novels, I thought, well, maybe I can make a book. So I've always regarded writing. That's been my little mind game, my little trick I play with myself. I'm not a writer. I'm a a builder of books. Mm. And so with a lot of research and that process of building a book, um, it gave me enough, just enough courage to undertake it and and now I've gone to extremes, and I get so swallowed <laughs> up in research. Cornell was the was the most extreme case. How many years? Six years, forty thousand pages of letters, thousands of pages of uh, diaries, uh, fifty years of editorials, just an mm-hmm. immense amount of paperwork. in on one hand, a biographer's dream, and another that was hand, one of the... nightmare
1: the things that I was really surprised to read in your book is what a prolific writer Grinnell was. I mean, he's wrote a lot. Well,
2: that's why people like to write books about people who lived before the internet, because there's a lot of paper lying mm. around. Mm. Um, I don't, I, you know, God help somebody who's writing a, a biography of somebody who who lives in the internet mm-hmm. days. Uh if I may, I'll tell you this story. It's a very Montana story about how I came on to the Grinnell Papers. i knew known that he'd left behind these letters. He he would dictate letters. He was an Easterner. He grew up in, in New York, lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Father bought the estate of John James Audubon, which gave him his first feel for adventure and, and nature. But anyway... Grinnell lived in the East, and then he would spend summers out West. He'd come back to his office and dictate letters. Sometimes, you know, several thousand words a day, there was a form of, and you, Aaron, as a, as a printer will understand, there was an early form of, what would we call it, mimeograph of, of copying. So every letter he wrote, there was a copy of it. Mm-hmm. When he got a thousand pages oh. of letters, he would bind them in a book um the come you had. and then so they're, they're, they're kind of blurry but there they are there are these all the all the letters he dictated and they would go out so you didn't have to go track down where your letters go they were mm-hmm. all there at home base so when you get a thousand pages of letters he'd start another books they ended up roundabout way they ended up in a library at yale university in new haven then Back then, in the 60s, what what did you do? Preserve document, you put it on microfilm. You could duplicate microfilm, it was film after all. And a set of this microfilm came to the Mansfield Library at the University of Montana, where I went and found this set of microfilm. So 40,000 pages of, of film that I had to consider reading. And looking at it in the basement in a dark room in a basement of a library, I thought, I'm going to be there till the end of time. Mm-hmm. And I walk up to the copy shop on the first floor of the Mansfield, and there was a young man there named Glenn Niebone, the, the the manager. And he said, "We got this new machine, and I can uh, digitize. I can scan microfilm at a rapid rate. I can do it uh, a thousand page reel in about half an hour." So. A couple months later, he handed me a flash drive, and for the first time, and I am the first person who had all of the body of Grinnell's work. This great naturalist, this great ethnologist, I had his life work on my desktop. Wow! So it really—if it two years before, it would have been impossible. Mm
0: You know, I, I did want to follow up with what you said about the, the writing because um, the craftsmanship of John's writing and and of Grinnell's, you know, I think Grinnell was a good writer. He wasn't as, as uh, much of a storyteller, so his books are, um, I found the Fighting Cheyennes to be, read mostly like a textbook.
1: They're very dry. Yeah. There's nothing... Uh and maybe this is part of the audience. Like, he was a big-time editor for *Forest and Stream yeah. for, for decades. But I think in the 19th century, when they recounted those exploits, it did tend to be dry and not yeah. all that, that engaging. Yeah. Not a lot of philosophical thought about the significance of what's going right. on. Right. Whereas, um, you know, Tolliver's book, on every page, it's not just here's what he did, but right. here's what he was thinking about it, mm-hmm. and he knows this because he read all the letters. Right.
0: Yeah, the fact that he had access to all those letters is just amazing, and it really shows. But I uh, think
1: you're. I think you should say more about um, George Bird Grinnell. At the actual- well,
0: um, I to me, the importance of these books that he wrote about the natives is you know it really can't be over overstated because. You know, nobody was taking the time and making the effort to record their stories. And he talked to people that knew, um, that had actual encounters with Meriwether Lewis. He talked to people that were there for the Custer battle. In fact, he was almost there for the Custer battle. He was
1: almost there for the battle, and then he was the first to take down the accounts of the Indians. So it's probably the first time, you know, in the history of white conquest that he actually... You know, somebody actually took the time to hear the history from their side.
0: Yeah. And I didn't know this, I hadn't heard of Grinnell until Sean's book came out, which is probably true for a lot of people, but um, just right after I finished reading this, I was down on the che- Cheyenne Reservation re- um, interviewing a, an elder there, and he brought up Grinnell, you know? Oh. And I asked my Adrian about it later, and he says, oh yeah, Grinnell's like God to the Cheyenne people, because he, he did, he took the time to tell their story, and nobody was doing that then. I also love the fact that Grinnell was, like, he he knew everyone. So he was part of the Custer... Um, and Marsh, the whole while. Dinosaur yeah, that's Wars? that's I was just going to bring up, The Marsh. Dinosaur
1: Bone Wars? That was I great. Just, I didn't know that either. Yeah. yeah,
2: Yeah, that was really... So he was... 20 years old, he graduated from Yale. His father was a, was a investment uh, guy in Wall Street and a merchant. And Grinnell didn't want to go work, work for him. So we went on this field trip with uh, a dozen of his fellow Yale students and the great Othniel March, the preeminent uh, paleontologist of his day who had just sort of digested Darwin's origin of the species. They got on the train, they went out in the Nebraska Prairie and started loading crate upon crate of dinosaur fossils onto the train and sending them Mm. back east and it was one of the great dinosaur digs of all time Mm -hmm. Grinnell of course had been totally uh, fueled by the Francis Parkman and all of western boy books that he'd read he's looking around and seeing hey I'm out here in Indian country they had Uh, Army scouts, they had Indian scouts leading him on this trip. The incredible thing about that summer of 1870 when they rode across Nebraska down into Wyoming, he never saw any bison. Oh, yeah. Never any buffalo. That was shocking. So so here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. Think about it. He's he's getting a... He's getting a, a... A real crash course in extinction he's picking up dinosaur bones these species that that were everywhere on the american in the center of the continent they're not here anymore and now he's looking around and realizing hey there's another extinction going on mm-hmm. it's going on to bison it's going on to other animals in, in the west and then what else is going on there's a there's an even more tragic extinction going on which is what was happened to native americans mm-hmm. changed his life mm.
1: I sort of was thinking about this on the drive. He's also connected to all these interesting people just by chance, Audubon and the... He's the Kevin Bacon of his time. <laughs> I mean, he's just connected to everybody, but what what drove him from the beginning? Like, he had this weird family, too. Like, one of the sons was yeah. gay and... Um, well, well, it sounds so...
0: like he was probably gay, too, right?
2: I, I'm pretty... I feel pretty confident that he was not that I he consummated or right. he was out, but I think that really ex- the fact that he was a closeted homosexual in the late nineteenth century, when you could go to jail for that, sure. and it was and, and part of his decision to have lived two lives, if you will, yeah. East and West. That's almost <laughs> metaphoric, but I think in Grinnell's case, it gave him sort of He's never really has to be planted in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, he always really, you read through his correspondence um, and he always talked about his self-restraint, his self-discipline. He, yeah. he, carried, that, he carried that into his uh, ethos for hunting. Don't be a game hog. Just play by the rules. Hold hold, hold yourself in. I, I, I don't mean that that's like some sort of lead pipe proof to his sexual orientation but there's enough pieces there to realize that that probably informed a lot of his decision
0: now i wonder you know it's funny i didn't it didn't occur to me until just just this minute but um it would have been interesting to ask john how much he um how much he sort of uh, identified with Grinnell because he's also from back east oh yeah grew up in Baltimore and went, went to, to Harvard, Harvard and yeah. Yale. so um, you know their their stories are a little bit similar in that way um, and you know we talked to him about how driven Grinnell was and you know the same could be said for John as far as his approach to the books he's written he's got six books out now so right? I think so
1: and one of the things that really struck me about John Tolliver was just how diverse his interests are. Yeah, were. isn't that true? Yeah. And it was kind of amazing how he said that many of them inadvertently overlapped and kind of led him to Grinnell. You right. know, the Grinnell book kept. he wrote about the Black Hills and Grinnell was on the Black Hills expedition yeah. with Custer and writing about Charlie Russell and, you know, Grinnell's name just kept popping up. Yeah. But then he also wrote a book about Edgar Rice Burroughs and he just... He's one of those people who has diverse interests, and when he takes an interest in something, it yeah. seems like he is going to get to the bottom of it. Well, and it's,
0: it's pretty amazing that he's been able to um, devote himself to those subjects and get published. You know, that's pretty hard to do these days. You, you have to be good. I mean,
1: And I think that's true of Grinnell, like you said. I mean, how many people outside of, you know, visitors to Glacier Park have ever even heard of Grinnell? Right. And when they do hear it, they immediately think of the college in Iowa, yeah. which has nothing to do with him.
0: Yeah.
1: I've been you know, when I was reading this book, I also was reading Eler's Koch's Forty Years of Forester, and they their lives overlap, but this yeah. whole ethos that you're describing, they both had this you know. Grinnell, too, these guys would hike twenty or thirty miles in a day and you know then sleep in the rain and not complain about it right
2: well, they were adventurers too. Grinnell was I mean he came west because he wanted to hunt, he wanted to climb up and be the first guy to climb a glacier he wanted to shoot sheep, he wanted to shoot elk it was it was good fun mm. um, so you got to put that in the equation too
1: um, to go back to Russell's point though about. Well, maybe it was you who said uh, all biography is autobiography. So I'm just curious, how do you go from Edgar Rice Burroughs to <laughs> Grinnell, Charlie Russell? Is it just stuff you find interesting? or?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, you look for somebody who's got a paper trail, first of all. And everybody I've written about from Charlie Russell through to Grinnell has been been somebody who was born around the time of the civil war and lived into the early 20th century mm-hmm. so i'm really trying to you know i've gotten comfortable with that era and i'm really and i I've, I've say this and it, sort of the over and over again in my books is what was that tradition and what was that transition in american civilization from this romantic notion of the frontier and mm-hmm. and uh the rawness of uh american uh life that came into the modern era, and what are the values, and how did they morph as they were applied into um, the life of urban, corporate, industrial, electrified, motorized America? Um, you remember Edgar Rice Burroughs, who was, of course, so famous for the Tarzan character, um, that he was a uh, Tarzan was Lord Greystoke. Mm. It was, it's the nature nurture thing. He was a he was a a man of 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 aristocratic be, uh, be, breeding who was raised by by apes in Africa. So again, it's that place that play between the 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 wild and the and the and the urbane. I, I guess
1: the thing about Burroughs that has always fascinated me the most is he didn't start writing until he was in his fifties.
0: Oh,
2: really. Wow. The that i'll tell you was, specifically that so i wrote a biography of charlie russell the cowboy artist so that was sort of my way to under to explain to myself why why were cowboys such a big thing in my life why did i'm not from the west i'm not from montana born in baltimore grew up in the east what what drew me here what was that whole cowboy thing that 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 really got us all worked up and russell was my way to to scratch my head about that. Mm. So when I finished Cowboys I thought, what's the most universal character besides a cowboy in popular culture? Well I think I thought you could go to anywhere in the world and say Tarzan and you know and, go uh-huh. into, and kids will pound their chest. What was the engine of popular culture that made and what was the thing about Tarzan that made him so ubiquitous? Hmm. Huh. So Cowboys to Tarzan wasn't as big a leap. The
1: <laughs> and they right? no, and they all that's all kind of
2: Pop culture.
1: Well, and your whole thing about that period in American history where really the frontier is vanishing and Charlie Russell came to it late and Grinnell came to it late and um Burroughs definitely
2: came to it. Yeah, the late. Late. sense so we all got here just we just gotten here a little bit earlier. Charlie <laughs> Russell is always saying he painted a million buffalo pictures. Charlie Russell never saw them a herd of wild buffalo.
0: As far as the content of Grinnell's books, um, you know, the Fighting Cheyennes is is fascinating um, as far as like it's just a... it's a written history of their battles. So he goes through what caused each battle with the Buildup was, and you know the reasons that they happened, and who was there, and all that. So, um, it's an amazing um, resource as far as research goes. Um, it's not something that most people would just pick up and read for pleasure, you know, which is probably true of most of his books, I would say. Yeah,
1: and I think the Blackfoot book, um, and I think it is. I called it Blackfeet, but I think it is Blackfoot because it's also Canada. Oh, okay. The, the larger. Right denomination that's right
0: he was friends with all those tribes i mean
1: he he really went was out amazing. his way to and apparently his practice was whenever he was you know just sitting around talking he would get his little notebook out and right and ask them their myths and stories and and so the black book is a lot of um you know tribal mythology and like where the world came from ah okay I mean, so it's i've never read the fighting Cheyenne, so i don't know yeah if that's, comparable, but um, I do agree with you on the point about his style. It's just not a style that translates well to the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Not that it's really good writing and it's important stuff, it's just, it's not... It's dry. Yeah, dry is probably the right word.
0: Also, you got to think about, you know, um, from our own experience and and, um, historically, the the amount of effort he would have had to put into getting to know these people to gain, gain their trust Sure Must have been enormous um, And John does a good job of documenting that too That um, the biggest part of, of gathering these stories was getting them to
1: trust him enough to talk about their, what happened You know, So that's pretty big well, and you know, he did a lot of advocacy for the Indians against yeah, the BIA. That's and, right. You know, people who are starving him, whether consciously or unconsciously. And
0: Yeah, he ended up being the go between in a lot of the negotiations that, that happened back then. So that was pretty amazing, too.
1: I really love this book. I love like yeah, the writing of it. It's like old school history it just had a tone that you don't find in a lot of biographies or histories.
0: But it was all, it was storytelling too. Yeah. Yeah, What's next?
2: Well, thank you. Well, I wrote this book for Grinnell. I wanted to restore his name as a household word, Mm -hmm. uh, because so many people have forgotten about him, but I also wrote it for me. I wanted, I like the exercise of, of, as I said, building a book and learning something and, and, and seeing if I can do it, it was quite exhausting, and I'm I vowed that I'm not going to think about anything for a while. I um, uh. I don't want to be, write the nineteenth book on Theodore Roosevelt or the Little Bighorn. I want, if ever, whenever I write a book, I want to find somebody who. Um, Belongs to me, if you will. I'm, I'm the Grinnell guy. Now there are other books. That, you know, Michael Punks written one. There's probably been more Grinnell books, but I really think like that um, he's part of me now. Mm-hmm. So can't really ask your question. What's next? But could be nothing.
0: <laughs> so yeah, we would uh, highly, highly recommend Grinnell. It's a uh, uh, like. Aaron said it's a masterpiece of a biography by our friend John Tolliver.
1: Yep, a 500-page book that you can't stop turning. on.
0: Yeah, I mean, really, it's
1: it's um, a it's a daunting looking book because it's you know seven by ten and yeah. 500 pages. But once you start, I, I'm sure you won't be able to stop. It's hard to put down. Yeah,
0: and then the Grinnell books. Uh, George Bird Grinnell is the the subject of John's book. John's book and. He wrote a lot of books, but the ones that we read were the Fighting Cheyennes and
1: and I can't remember the exact title, but the the basically the history of the black the Blackfoot tribes.
0: Mm-hmm. So join us next time. Next time we're excited. We're going to be talking to um, Tom McGwane about his book The Bushwhacked Piano, and we're going to pair that with
1: with the book that. Tom McGuane actually requested we talk about it, isn't it? Yep. Uh, One of our favorites, The Power of the Dog by Thomas Savage.
0: Join us again next time, Breakfast in Montana. We'll see you. Thanks again for joining us for Breakfast in Montana. Breakfast in Montana is written and produced by Aaron Parrott and Russell Rowland. The music is written and performed by Aaron Parrott. Breakfast in Montana would like to thank the Drum Lemon Institute and... Montana Arts Council for their generous support. Join us again next time.